0: to episode 82 of Pub Crawl, a publishing podcast about reading, writing, books and occasionally booze. I'm your host SJ Jones. I'm a New York Times best-selling author and erstwhile editor.
1: And I'm your co-host Kelly Van Sant. I am a literary agent and a publishing contracts expert. We are both
0: contributors with the Publishing Crawl blog and together we have over 15 years of industry experience. So I think today we will be concluding our kind of another mini-series on characterization. And today we're going to talk about narrative arcs, which I think are pretty essential to characterization. It, you know, a character can't just be characterized in a vacuum with nothing around them. Mm-hmm. Um, also, apologies if we sound a little bit lackluster. I got very little sleep last night and
1: kelly is ill again so. yeah but we love you guys we're here we're doing the we're thing we're soldiering on i don't
0: even have a good reason for sounding lackluster i was just up really late trying to kill a video game boss <laughs> and i failed by the way i didn't even i didn't even not even worth it didn't even not make even it worth it i didn't even it didn't happen um so, uh, my apologies. So, if we sound super scatterbrained, that would be why. Also, two weeks in a row were we sounding kind of scatterbrained. What is with us? I don't know, man. I don't know. Ugh. Anyway. Uh, narrative change. Now, I kind of want to approach this a little bit differently, I think, than we did our previous episodes in that it because... I mean I I do believe that a narrative arc is tied to characterization but it's not the only thing right mm-hmm. like it it's all moving parts that work together in a book um because a book that does not have a narrative arc is often one where I close and then I ask what was the point mhm and it doesn't even have to be it doesn't even have to be that it was a good plot or a bad plot or if I liked it or didn't like it because there are a lot of books I like that kind of don't have points to them <laughs> like I just it was just a bunch of interconnected scenes um between characters that I liked and I enjoyed that enough to continue reading that kind of a thing but I want there it particularly in a novel I think there is a difference between a novel and a short story in that I think a novel really has to be about transformation somehow. Whether or not the world transforms or your character transforms, sometimes both, Um, not always. But there has to be transformation somewhere. And I think that is actually what distinguishes a novel from a short story, aside from the obvious length part. Uh, Because for me, I also think short stories need to have a point. But I don't read short stories for transform the transformative arc. I read short stories for the punchline. Um but, I, I, this is only I only brought this up because I was actually talking with a short story writer a couple weekends ago, and um uh, they are attempting to write a novel, and they kind of confided to me that they had difficulty with this. And it isn't characterization, it isn't story idea, it isn't anything like that in particular and I, so this is sort of what kind of came to me as I was talking to them. I was like, well, most short stories, because of the space that you have to write the short story, you have, everything has to get to the point. But in a novel that, the there is no punchline, or I don't like novels with punchlines personally, but it's the journey of transformation that is the experience of reading the novel. So How does this tie into characterization exactly? Um, What we mentioned before, or at least when last week, we talked about Aang Mm -hmm. uh, and Avatar the Last Airbender. Aang being an example of a character that doesn't change all that much, but Mm -mm. the world around him does. And also people who come into contact with him also change. Most notably Zuko, obviously. Zuko Mm -hmm. is... like, a lot of Zuko's character growth is, in fact, driven by Zuko, but it also is driven by his contact with and exposure to Aang. So that is a narrative of transformation that exists there. Um, help me out here, Kelly, because I'm running on, like, four hours of sleep. And I, I know. And I can't do
1: anything less than, like, nine. <laughs> <laughs> so... Yeah, we talked a little bit about um, Aang last week. We also talked about Katniss being another example of this, of a character who doesn't change much. Um, And I think that arcs in general throughout stories are important and arcs are exactly what you said. They are that. Um, journey of transformation. And so we have narrative arcs over the course of the entire book. Each, you know, character could have an individual character arc. There can be a relationship arc, you know, between two characters, there can kind of be all different um, types of arcs throughout your book. And I was actually just recently editing um, a client manuscript and I was talking to her about character arcs and, my note to her was really bizarre. JJ knows that I'm known for these kind of like bizarre metaphors when I try to <laughs> edit people. <laughs> I don't know why my brain goes to these strange things, but it always does. And they usually um, end up illustrating my point pretty well. So I gave her this weird metaphor, um, which was, this is also pretty specific because I'm a parent and I have a child. But do you remember those wooden trackers. You would see them a lot in like doctor's offices and it's kind of like oh, a yeah, wooden they're like frame. Yep. Yeah. It's like a wooden frame. And then, um, going across from one side of the frame to another are like four or five different metal wires that go in, you know, one goes in zigzags and one spirals and one, you know, mm-hmm. goes up and down and they all have different, um, you know, trajectories. Um, and then on each wire is a set of beads and you can push them through the loops and the swirls and get from one side to the other. And I was telling her, you know, your, the frame, the wooden frame is, you know, the beginning of the book and the end of your book. And each wire with beads on it is a different, Arc. You know, there might be your main plot, and then at the same time, there's your protagonist's arc, and then, you know, your villain's arc, and then this romantic relationship arc. You know, there's all these different arcs happening throughout your book, and they don't all have to rise and fall at the same time. Like the bead tracker, you know, a character arc could be going up while, you know, a main plot arc is going down and so on and so forth. So that when you look at it from the side, you see all the different tracks at different points in time and that, um, that movement and having each of those arcs, um, is really important in terms of things like driving your story forward, um, engaging your readers emotionally, um, you know, making your world seem authentic. Like all those different arcs have different jobs and different reasons for being there. Um, But arcs I think are important and you can have lots of different ones in your book at the same time.
0: And also I like that metaphor because of the twistiness of the different tracks that you can put the beads on because a straightforward one is boring. Uh Uh-huh. Right? If you just go from point A to point B, you're done, um, yeah, you got from point A to point B, but <laughs> but um, who cares but who cares? That takes about two seconds at the doctor's office, whereas uh-huh. if you have a long one with twisty turns. It could take you i don't know thirty seconds <laughs> um, <laughs> but it I do like that metaphor for that reason. It's also because when we talk about particularly character growth and transformation. A lot of people, I think, think of that as being linear, as being they are growing as a human mm. being, and that everything they do or whatever takes them, clo- brings them closer to their final evolution or whatever it is. That's not always the case. That's not the case for human beings in real life. But again, I'm gonna, we're going to bring up Avatar again um, because Zuko, you could see, has this progression from beginning to the end of the second season where you're like I can see the person you're supposed to be Zuko and then he backslides. It's and you and you hate it and I get it. Um but he but it also makes sense that he backslides mm-hmm. because he has not been tested yet in this evolution of who he's going to be because you see the kid who has wanted his father's validation his entire life and it takes him a long time and a lot of love and guidance from his surrogate father figure to tell him that you know what you are worthy without your father's approval and even though he's been told that he hasn't experienced that yet so he only knows that he has not lived that yet so when presented with the opportunity to finally have everything he's ever wanted he takes it and it makes sense that he does even as it's infuriating but it also makes sense but I also think As infuriating as that decision was, it also makes for a far greater emotional payoff. Yes. When he finally gets to the good person that we always knew he was. Mm. Um, We actually talked about this on our other podcast. um, And Kelly was so mad about it, I remember. (laughs) Um, And she had texted me and Mike, and just like, he's like, ah, why, why? (laughs) um, But I also said, like, look... Because he's never been tested, if he decided to turn good at the end of season two, like in a straightforward way, Mm -hmm. then him, he would have to backslide at some point, you think. And Mm -hmm. at that point, he would probably have to die somehow at the very end of the series saving Aang, and that proves that he has finally hit his final evolution, as opposed to this backslide in the middle where he gets everything he's ever wanted and realize it's still hollow. Mm -hmm. Um,
1: Yeah, Yeah, because I think that you're right. I think that the way that people evolve and change is that it's a slow, painful process that we stumble on. You know, we make mistakes and we, you know, make bad choices and we revert to what's easy for a while. And, you know, the the will to change to become better is, um, something that you have to work for and earn. And we talk a lot on this podcast too, about earning your emotional payoff. Um, you know, that it's not enough that your character just does the thing. They have to earn that or else it won't ring true to your readers. And Zuko's backsliding, although it did break my heart at the time, and I was so angry. Um, I wasn't angry because it was out of character. It wasn't like I felt like, oh, Zuko would never do that. Mm-hmm. I was right. disappointed in him. It's like the Tyra gift. Like, I was rooting for you. Like, <laughs> we're all rooting for <laughs> we're you. All rooting for you. <laughs> you know, and he and he makes this heartbreaking choice. Um, you know, and then has to come back. From that, you know, and then he has a real moment where it's like, okay, now I've made this choice. Do I continue on this path or do I try to right myself, you know, and and get back where I'm supposed to be? Um, and when we get to the end of that series, spoiler alert, and he has, you know, has transformed himself and has really earned that, um, it's so emotionally satisfying. So I think, I, I think Zuko's a really great example of character. In general, I just think it's really yeah. just an, an impeccably done arc um, but I think that you're right, and that metaphor of the bead tracker with its own individual ups and downs is important um you know you always want to be i think we focus a lot in writing and like you think like when you're back in high school or middle school or whenever it is that they teach, like the story diagram of like, you know, oh, exciting yeah. incident and then the cli- like building to the climax and Clint then the and denouement, <laughs> you know, and it's Both like, when Kelly you- and her gesturing as we do this, like, <laughs> the little triangle thing, little triangle mountain <laughs> yeah. peak. Like. You know that like, when you look at that Ill- illustration, it's really simplified and it just shows you the rising action. You know, like we just see things going up to the climax, But in reality, it's much more, like, kind of jagged. Like, you go up a little bit and then you go down. And, you know, it's not just a steady incline. Um, And I think so many of us, whether consciously or subconsciously, have that, like, rising action, like, built into our minds and ingrained in us that we don't think about um, that dynamic kind of give and take where you take two steps forward and one step back, Um, you know? And it's the same thing, like... With, But whether you're talking about like a narrative arc or a, you know, a a character arc, you know, whether they're going on a quest, like when someone's on a quest, they don't just do one thing after another, you know, there's always a stumbling block, there's an obstacle, there's something that's broken or missing or that you need to find or that, you know a puzzle you have to solve like there's something that gets in your way that trips you up that that makes you stumble and it's the same thing with character arcs you know nobody just has a steady progression into you know their their final evolved state
0: the thing about transformation is that if it's just a straightforward transformation it it seems a little too easy, I guess, and this isn't a bad thing. There are definitely books with very straightforward progressions and straightforward transformations that I've enjoyed and that I think are good, but I think the point that Kelly and I some, are sometimes getting at, it's not that there aren't exceptions to what we're saying. There are. There are plenty of exceptions to what we say. It's just that sometimes when things don't quite ring true or it's not quite hitting the right note with with agents or editors or readers that that might be it, that it's a little bit, I don't know, paint by the numbers, or I focus so hard on making the craft good or correct that I haven't focused on what makes it breathe. And 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 when you think about your book as something, as a work of, trans- as a story of transformation, because that's really for me, what distinguishes a novel from any other form of writing is is the novel is is what is being transformed, and a lot of plot in a lot of plot driven novels, it's the world that is being transformed, sort of. Not always, um, but you know, it's a lot of external things that happen or that change in the world. Again, I keep using the Hunger Games as an example. Katniss herself doesn't change very much from beginning to end, but Because of her, the world around her is starting to change. Um, There is a rebellion happening, and there is, you know, there's a whole bunch of stuff externally that is happening in the capital, in the districts, all that because of her. And that is the narrative of transformation. And I would, and not that The Hunger Games isn't a character-driven novel, because everything is really more or less stems from the decisions Katniss makes, or doesn't make, to be completely honest. Um and so like so i t- but i do tend to think of the hunger games as much more plot driven mm-hmm. so but then on the flip side you could also have very intensely character driven novels where not a lot happens externally mm-hmm. but there's a lot of transformation happening internally and those books are often slower because people like external change and they don't but obviously, we, we like books that combine both, but they're not inherently good or bad. If something is slow-paced because the world around them is not transforming fast enough, that's a personal preference, right? Mm-hmm. Granted, you can also have it where neither your characters change and nothing happens, and of course, those are not enjoyable to read either. But... That's I think kind of the difference between like a plot driven book and a character driven book is whether or not it is the external world that is transforming or the internal world of the character that is. Um trying to think of what else to say about the nature of transformation when it comes to like I said there, it's really hard to extricate character and narrative because something always has to be changing. If the character isn't changing in the in the moment, then the world has to be changing in the moment. Um, or if your character isn't the one changing, but they are affecting other people around them. Um, the one I... Actually, the, the book that I'm thinking of right now is, is Crooked Kingdom mm. and Six of Crows. Kaz is kind of really at the center of... <clears throat> at the center of this group of people. And he is the one that changes things for the people around him. But he himself as a character doesn't really develop all that much. He gets more development in Crooked Kingdom. But when I think of Six of Crows, he's he's not the one doing a lot of changing. The world around him is doing a lot of changing. And then the second book, Crooked Kingdom, it's more internally driven, even though it's also incredibly plot-driven because Lee is an incredibly great writer, but um, the first book, that's not exactly an example of a book where it's a lot of character growth, per se. Mm-hmm. But I will fight anyone who says it's a bad book. <laughs> like No!
1: It's an amazing book.
0: <laughs> it's an amazing book! Um, but you also, I think, at when you approach these things as a writer, when you approach books that you read and whether or not you deem them good or bad personally for you as a as a writer of books yourselves, you know just because something doesn't fulfill what you think is good doesn't necessarily mean that the book is bad, and I also think that you all you have to take into consideration the intent now we talk about too that the whole concept of the author is dead, right like the author is dead you, whether or not they intended something doesn't mm-hmm. necessarily is not is less important than what is actually in the text. But if the writer is good enough, you can glean the intent mm-hmm. from what they've already written. And for a book like Six of Crows, it's clearly not supposed to be like a super character-driven book. Mm-hmm. So when you when you if people complain about the fact that there's, you know, the the char- the characterization isn't dynamic or whatever, but that's kind of missing the point of that first book.
1: Right. And I think also too with a book like Six of Crows, um, character development and growth—the the, the change that the characters go through—is not the point of that book. Yes. That being said, the characters themselves are amazingly compelling. They're well drawn. Mm-hmm. They have dynamic relationships with one another that are changing. Um, you know, so while it's not necessarily a book about characters who need to learn lessons or internalize, you know, things or whatever else, um, they are very well characterized. Um, it's just that the thrust of that book is not on the change of the characters. So, mm-hmm. you know, you can write a book where character development or character arcs are not the point, but that doesn't get you off the hook for crafting good characters. You can't neglect that. Um, your characters still need to be well-rounded. They still need to be believable and engaging. And Lee Bardugo does an amazing job of that in Six of Crows. All of the characters in that book are real. They, you know, they breathe. They seem authentic and they're different and unique. And, um, you know, they, they live on the page. And that's why that works. You don't, we don't need them to have any development because they're already kind of, their fully actualized selves, and it's about what these people are doing and the change they're affecting on the world rather than on, you know, them finding whatever it is they need to find internally.
0: Yeah, and I think this is something that again, when you're approaching a book that you've read critically as a writer um, and also as a reader, because I do think that what you read and what you write are connected, obviously, or I hope they are anyway. (laughs) Uh, Because learning to differentiate between this is my personal preference and this book didn't fulfill that is different from I think this is what the author was trying to do and they didn't achieve that. Mm. And particularly when I was an editor, that was crucial as as something that I had to do because... Obviously, I bought a book, I would try and acquire a book based on whether or not I liked it, you know, my own personal taste of whether or not I wanted to read a book like this. But then I would have to step back and try and glean from the text and also conversations with the author, blah, 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 what they intended to do Mm -hmm. and help them execute that vision as fully as possible. And this is what I mean by reading critically. It's not necessarily nitpicking craft, Because craft is craft. It's guidelines. You know, you don't have to follow every single rule. They're only really there to sort of help you organize and streamline how you want to tell a story. It's not rules that you have to adhere to so closely. At least that's my philosophy, particularly when it came to editing. I didn't care if you, like, broke a rule or bent a rule or whatever, as long as the story you were trying to tell me reached its fullest potential in whatever way that we can make it happen. And of course, there's, you know, I always try to defer to the author as best I could. Like, what is what, what did you intend? What did you want? Because I might want something to happen, but that's not what the author wants or intends to happen. And whenever there is that mismatch, I would be a terrible editor if I told them, well, you have to do it my way, because that's mm-hmm. just not right. It's not my work what i would do is then i was like okay well this is what i wanted but that's clearly not what you intended so let's kind of maybe backtrack a little bit, bit and maybe figure out why i decide, why this came across to me that way and then we would kind of troubleshoot and i would help the author sort of fix it from that point so this business being it is subjective in that way but i think it also behooves people to start to separate what i think is good personally, in that what I'm in the mood for or what my personal tastes are, and also what is objectively good, craft-wise, quote-unquote, because you can also admire a book for its craft and the fact that it actually achieves everything that it sets out to do that you still Mm -hmm. don't like anyway. That is literally personal taste. That is just not really for me or whatever. There are a lot of books like that that I acknowledge and that I know are impeccably written, crafted, characterized, you know, really, really great books that I just don't like because I just don't like them. It's a personal thing. It's just not for me is really what it comes down to. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to think if there's... <clears throat> is, trying to read... This could almost be a separate podcast episode about reading critically. Mm. Because what we're taught in school to read critically, and when we read critically for story, are related. The processes are related, but they're, the goals and aims are a little bit different. Because I think when you are taught to read critically in school, or if you majored in English like I did, you are taught to con- you are aiming to contextualize or explicate what is in the text in it, both in the time period that the person was writing that story, and also comparing in how that sheds light in um, society today or whatever. Like there's there's contextualizing and explication, which is more. Inside out, if that makes sense, like you're mm-hmm. trying to contextualize a book in the world around them. But when you are reading critically as a storyteller and as an editor, you are doing it the other way around. In some ways you are trying to make sure that the internal world of the book that you are working on makes sense. And that is what you are reading critically for. Did that make sense? Or is that just like me? on very little sleep. No, that laboring? makes sense. That makes sense. <laughs> Um, because I think I've, I've talked to like, you know, younger people in publishing who are, (laughs) this is actually, we have a mutual friend, um, Bex, when we were first in our writing group and she was also working in publishing at the time. And she had told the story about how she had gotten her first internship in publishing, I think, um, because everyone else that she had gone to interview with, she went to NYU like I did. Also majored in English literature. And when she was interviewing for jobs at literary agencies, and every other English major that she had interviewed with was talking about like all the great classic, you know, books of literature or whatever. And she's like, I like commercial fiction. And they're like, you're hired. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I, you know, I think that says something though about what the priorities are when it comes to academia versus publishing. Mm -hmm. One is, one is, well, it's for profit, right? Like, but when you try and understand what makes something commercial, it's really trying to understand what makes the internal world of that book consistent and compelling. And you can read critically for that kind of a thing as well. So that's kind of what I'm trying to get at about this could almost be a totally separate podcast about what it is to read critically and read critically editorially because there's we also we read for multiple reasons right we read for escapism we read to learn things we read to whatever there everyone has various reasons for why they read, and those reasons can change based on the hour or the day or whatever um, but reading editorially is not something a lot of people talk about. And I also think that is a skill that can be developed because they're, and this is like the critical brain that writers often talk about when they talk about their own work, when they are rereading their own work or rereading other people's books, they're like, I can't shut off my critical brain. I can, I have no problem doing that. I can read whatever I want. Um, and yeah, I have a critical brain that yaps at me, but I'm just like, yeah, whatever, be quiet. I don't really care. I'm enjoying myself but then after i've enjoyed myself i like to kind of look back and figure out why because even though my critical brain might be nitpicking at me here and there about whatever craft issues that i had with the book or whatever then having to sit back and then think to myself or work through why did i enjoy it anyway Mm -hmm. i think it's something valuable uh it's also why i don't believe in it, I don't believe in the concept of a guilty pleasure read. Mm. I don't care. <laughs> Did I enjoy it? That's all that matters. I don't care if the quali- the perceived quality is trash or whatever. I don't care. Yeah. Um, but I think that's crucial for a lot of writers because I think so many people conflate, quote, crap good writing, and I'm putting this in scare quotes, good writing with a good book. Mm-hmm. I don't know. A good book that is enjoyable, it's really like when, or rather people conflate good with enjoyable. Because there are actually a lot of books, good books that I think are really good that I didn't enjoy reading. That I acknowledge are really good and wonderful and transformative, and in fact, I reread sometimes, but I know exactly what experience I'm going in when I'm rereading these books. I know I'm not going to enjoy myself, but it put it here's the other aspect of transformation too, because there is the character that transforms, the world that transforms, and then the reader that transforms Mhm- and when I talk about comfort reads, for me, it is actually I'm the one that transforms right. Because when I'm reading something like The Red Tent, which is not really that enjoyable of a reading experience, except for the catharsis that comes at the end of it. (laughs) Um, And I think the best books, not even the best books, I think that that really should be the point, right? There is a, a, the point of a novel is transformation. The world, the character, and the reader. So... Do you have anything else you want to add? or
1: No, I think that is a pretty good, you know, statement to end on. All right. So what are we working on? Oh, I'm still trying to get caught up. I'm still chasing submissions. I'm still working. <laughs> I don't know guys. I'm like, I'm so sick right now, but it's like just trying to form coherent sentences is a, is a job in and of itself. But, um, but no, for real, um, I'm supposed to hear back tomorrow on a project that I've offered representation on that I want really, really, really badly. So I'm waiting on that. Um, I'm about to go on sub with Another client's project, um, and it'll be our first time going out on sub with this book. And um, so I'm putting the finishing touches on that sub list. Um, and I'm also trying to step up my networking in the new year. Um, networking never Ends. <laughs> <laughs> it just, it just keeps going forever and ever as people get promoted into positions where they can acquire, as people, um, you know, move houses, um, and even just people that you've connected with before, you know, like our tastes are changing all the time and, what an editor liked and was really looking for nine months ago is probably not necessarily their same priorities right now. So it's really good to get back in touch and, you know, refresh things and all that. So I'm trying really hard to focus on networking going into the the new year. I guess we're already in the new year, but you know, uh, in this I'm first
0: I'm still writing, <laughs> writing twenty seventeen. I uh oh.
1: <laughs> I know. I know. I was so proud of myself cuz like the whole first day after the first day of the year I didn't mess up once and I was like bragging about it and then of course every every time I've written a date since then it's been wrong. Um <laughs> <laughs> But uh but yeah, trying to focus really hard on networking. I also need to focus on my own manuscript wish list. It really needs an update. Um And I am I find that a really interesting part of the process because it's like, I know what I want and I know the kind of submissions that I want to see in my inbox. And I have found that trying to articulate those wants and desires is more difficult than I anticipated. Sometimes I say something that I'm like, okay, this is really clear. This is going to get me exactly what I want. And I'll see an influx of submissions that I can tell are based off that desire or that tweet that I tweeted or that thing I put on my blog. I can tell like people read what I wrote and it, they think it connects with their manuscript and they're sending it to me. Um And it's not what I want, <laughs> but I can see how they got there. You know, I understand how they interpreted it that way. So I'm finding that um putting my desires into words in a way that is universally understood is really difficult.
0: <laughs> it's it's this is there's an art to pitching, and this is kind of what a manuscript wish list is in some ways because it's yeah. almost a pitch in itself, right? You're pitching right whatever you want um, because there's the surface level similarity of you know the basic. It's like this on a surface level. It's like the X meets Y concept, right? The high right. concept pitch that people talk about. Then what I know where the mismatch is for you is that it is not matching mood-wise or totally yes. what you were looking for. That is always the difficult part. Um, because when I pitched my book, uh, you know, it was shorthand. Uh, I called it Labyrinth Meets Amadeus because it's about music and it's, it's loosely inspired by the movie Labyrinth. But that's the surface level description because the other comps I used were Lord Ketra and um no sorry Ketra and Lord Death by Martine Levitt and Beauty by Robin McKinley, which mm-hmm. story wise don't really have that much to do with my book. But mood wise is kind of what I was going for. So you almost need those two things. Like on, right. on the outside, something might match you match what you're looking for in terms of, like, basic story. Like, if we—for example, we're going to go back to Life is Strange again. If we get the Life <laughs> is Strange book, at least I if want I— want it so
1: bad. <laughs> <laughs> you're like, eh. um,
0: If we want the Life is Strange book, you can say this is really about— um, it's a friendship story between two girls, but it's really mood-wise— it's 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 a story about two girls who are not really communicating or connecting, but slowly are able to connect to each other by the end. Mm-hmm. Is essentially that's the novel that's the narrative of transformation that happens in this game. Um and then you get invested in them like or at least I do, I get super invested <laughs> in them. I'm like, yeah. Um so that's kind of the thing. Like Somebody could be like, oh, this is like Life is Strange, and you get a, a book about two girls in high school having friendship issues, but that's not what you're looking for because it's not matching you
1: mm-hmm. tonally.
0: Yeah. So you kind of need two levels. You have to decide why. <laughs> <laughs> oh, believe me, I, I learned this when I would take agents out to lunch when I was an editor, and I would ex- describe what I was looking for or that what I want. I've ultimately ended up picking a whole vast array of things um to sort of describe my taste because what i was really going for is the mood yeah. and not the actual surface similarity stuff yeah yeah so i have learned that so when you <laughs> when you do when you do update your manuscript list that is how, that is actually how you should update your book that's how to do your it list, yeah, yeah. Uh, i am working on my next book which Oh, i have I had a breakthrough the other day, which made me feel so much better. My big problem with it was that it felt emotionally distant from my main character's point of view, and I couldn't crack why. I honestly just couldn't figure out why and then I had lunch with Roshni Chakshi, and she said something supremely random, um but it just clicked something, so I was like, Oh wait, I know how to fix this now, So that really helped. I am journaling a lot, which is why I keep mentioning the date. Uh, When I'm drafting, I often have to journal concurrently by hand to, like, talk myself through the book. Uh, Almost like I'm talking to another person, except I'm talking to myself. So I do this by journaling. And I always date my journals. (laughs) I kept dating them 2017. (laughs) And it was, like, literally, like, two days ago, I realized, oh, shoot. Like, I went from, like, December ninth, 2017 to January 3rd, 2017. <laughs> I was like, oops. Um, so there's that. I also had this short story idea. <gasps> um. We'll see if it remains a short story, though, because I can't write them.
1: You don't do those? No, I don't. <laughs> um.
0: So I had a short story idea that I started writing, but then I got distracted because I wanted the title for this short story to be a line from the Magic Flute. Um, so I was looking through the librettos of the Magic Flute, and then I got distracted trying to translate the German into singable English. Um, and then I realized, as I was going through my projects, that I'd actually already tempted that three years ago. Uh-huh, I remember. <laughs> and I was like, oh my god, <laughs> Like I keep going down this same... It's like it's a it's a time loop that I can't escape. (laughs) This is where I live. Um, So that was kind of my big distraction today. Um, But writing is going well. Finally. Finally, it feels like it's going well. So that's that's what I'm that's what I'm doing. (laughs) Yay.
1: Oh, what are you reading? I didn't read anything this week because I basically had a fever the entire time and couldn't read anything. (laughs) So, nope. What about you? I have a lot of arcs that I
0: need to read. Um, I actually did read a manuscript three days ago um, that's by an author I'm being very kind of vague. This is kind of the problem, as i would mentioned previous, in previous podcasts, about a lot of the stuff I read, and a lot of it isn't published. Uh, a lot of it isn't published because I've, I've been sent things for blurbs or I'm reading th- uh, manuscripts for friends. So I did read uh, a manuscript for a friend, and I really loved it, and I'm probably going to give a blurb on it, uh, but I can't. Really say what
1: it, you don't know, like it's just it's like publishing a publishing secret uh, <laughs> It's it's
0: just it's just weird because you know if i would even if I were to tell you what it was, it has no context for anyone yet because this yeah. book will be published for like another eighteen months so you know like, um, so nothing published uh I have got like twenty five audible credits, and i don't know what to spend them on so if any of you guys have audiobooks that you've loved. Please give me recommendations
1: because I have so many credits that I have not used. Yeah. Um, did you listen some- to the Forest of a Thousand Lanterns in audio yet? I heard that one just won some kind of a word. I think right. Oh,
0: got to start a starred review. Um, but that's oh yeah, there one. it is. That's a good one. I'll definitely, I'll definitely download that. I literally have like seven credits. <laughs> so- <laughs> it shows you how much I've been using Audible. Um honestly like my audiobook reading has sharply declined once I quit my day job because, you know, like Right. You're not and, on the commute anymore um, and you're yeah. not yeah. And I'm not working with numbers all day at a job where I can listen to a book at the same time. So uh just my audible read my audiobook reading has just dropped. Um So yeah, uh and yeah, nothing in print so far. Uh the bells comes out actually the same day Shadow Song does, which I'm super excited about. And th- th- there's stuff coming up that I'm actually pretty excited about. I think maybe this is also that my moods are starting to shift again. So I'm like, oh yeah, things. <laughs> uh yeah. Any off many
1: recommendations? No. Again, I had a fever all week. I was basically bedridden. I watched Glow again, and that's all I did, (laughs) was have a fever and watch Glow.
0: I have been re-watching bits of a British sketch show called That Mitchell and Webb Look, and I'm really, really mad because it used to be streaming, I think, on Netflix, maybe, but they've taken it off Netflix, but it's not anywhere else that I can find I can't even buy it, you guys. I can't buy it. There's four series. There's four seasons of the sketch show. And they only have season four available on DVD. What is even the point of this? Like, <laughs> I really... That, that Mitchell and Webb look is... Um, these two British comedians, David Mitchell and Robert Webb, they used to have, I think, um, a radio show called that Mitchell and Webb sound that was just kind of like them riffing off of each other and um they also had a sitcom that was i think that is actually still on hulu or something if you guys are interested called peep show um and peep show was pretty funny and i i enjoyed it but i really loved their sketch show i tend to like sketch shows actually like i i I do like that kind of because i think comedy should be short like Mm -hmm. horror Like, Black Mirror, right? Like, Black Mirror is, like, one episode and it's done. And I feel the same way often about horror, that, like, it should be short. Um, and, you know, because then often the commentary that's in in the sketch is much more pointed and funny. Um... So, I've been kind of, like, scouring YouTube for a lot of the sketches that I remember that I enjoyed about this show. And some of them are up, some of them are not. But I'm just really mad that I can't, like, actually buy it. I
1: would, I would I give know. them
0: money. Take, shut up and take my money. <laughs> like, <laughs> I am really mad about that. So, that's kind of my, it's not really an off-menu recommendation in that I've been watching it. I just want it. It's really one <laughs> give me what i want (laughs) like i said shut up and take my money um and i I mentioned before i was up till 3 a.m finishing um my second playthrough of dragon age um and i was what actually took me forever is i've actually started playing the downloadable content and i have one downloadable basically the epilogue to the main game of inquisition left um and I was just mad because I I I, every, I died I died about eight times trying to defeat one of the bosses in one of the downloadable contents, and before I gave up a three m, and I was like, fine, I'll just go to bed. <laughs> um, and then after that, I think I'm on a video game break. I am um, just really tired right now, and I only played Inquisition to see through Alistair's storyline um and i've played through Alistair's part in it and i'm kind of like okay now i'm done i need a break <laughs> um and i and i'd said this too that i was going back and forth between whether i was going to play mass effect or horizon zero dawn and i think after my break i'm probably going to play mass effect as opposed to horizon zero dawn But who knows? Maybe we'll come to the end of my video game hiatus and I've Mm -hmm. changed my mind again and it's a game that I haven't even mentioned before, so who knows? Um, Nothing else? I haven't seen any movies. I keep meaning to go see The Shape of Water, especially now that it's Oscar nominated. Um, I'm trying to get Mark interested in going to see it and he's kind of like, "Mm, I don't know. (laughs) I tried to sell him on it. He is not I mean he likes horror, but that's not what the shape of water is. So I can't like sell him on the horror angle. Uh I tried to make him watch um what was it that I was trying to make him watch that I tried to be like it's kind of oh, I, it was another Guillermo del Toro movie. It was Crimson Peak and he was like, "What even is this?" I was like, "Tried?" <laughs> So it may just be me in the theater um, by myself
1: when I go see The Shape of Water. (laughs) Have you seen Star Wars yet? No. This Friday. (laughs) We have a babysitter and everything. (laughs) It's happening. It's happening. I also thought of two recommendations that I would forgotten about because mm-hmm. i'm just so fever-brained one is that i tweeted earlier in the week that i've never actually seen all of national treasure um i've seen like bits of it from when it was on tv and obviously i know the basic outline of it because it's a nicholas cage movie and so I they're all movie. essentially the same oh yeah so it's on netflix so i watched it for the I first love it. time <laughs> love national treasure i had a fever of like 102 i'm on the couch in like 17 blankets and like my sweats and i'm just like glassy eyed and feverish and crazy and i put it on and david walked in and he's like are you watching national treasure and i was like i've never seen it and i'm very excited (laughs) so he sat with me and made fun of me while i watched it it was great highly enjoyable um and then the other thing that I had wanted to mention that I actually had wanted to mention last week and forgot um, is that my daughter turned four. And so I told her that when she turned four, we would start reading chapter books aloud as a family. That's something that um, we did in my family growing up. I've talked about it before on the podcast. I think I actually wrote about it on Pub Crawl once that my mom would read books to us out loud up until we were in high school. Um, And it's something that I really wanted to do with my daughter. So I was trying to find a good book to start, and she's still pretty young. So I wanted something um, that was really accessible for her. And someone told me about um, Shannon Hale's series, The Princess in Black.
0: Oh, yeah, yeah.
1: And Shannon Hale is wonderful. I've read some of her other things like Princess Academy. and I love those um, books. Yeah. She's got some great great books and this is um you know a much younger early reader chapter style book about a princess who has a secret identity as a superhero and they are delightful like just truly delightful highly enjoyable I I'm not sick of reading them. There are, I think, five books out, and we have all five, and we've just cycled through them again and again and again because my kid can't get enough of them. So if you're looking for, like, an early start chapter book, um, highly recommend The Princess in Black series by Shannon Hale.
0: I need to step up my younger
1: reading. Yeah. I need to read more middle grade.
0: Yeah, like, more middle grade. I think because I'm so burned out on kind of YA at the moment also some adult books to be completely honest and so as a result I'd I'd like started reading graphic novels again but I think I should go back and like seek out new middle grade to read and the thing I, I love about middle grade is that middle grade is very action driven it's it is world transformation driven um you know and so those tend to move much more quickly than a lot of the character-driven stuff that older books do. So I think I should... And a lot of them are are whimsical and work Mm -hmm. on two levels because it also needs to entertain adults as well as children. I don't know. Like, to me, I've said this before, but the younger you write, the harder it gets. (laughs) Yep. The younger and shorter you write, the harder it gets. Like, I still think picture books are probably, like, one of the hardest things in the world to write. Oh, yeah. Um... But I should, I should, like, just go to, it's going to be, like, the, what is this weird grown woman doing in, like, the children's section of the bookstore without a kid of her own? I don't care! <laughs> um, yeah, so that's my off-menu recommendation, which doesn't really exist for people to find. I apologize. But maybe we could all petition the BBC on, on my behalf to, like, release all, all of the seasons for the Let's American do it. audience. <laughs> there're just there are two sketches in particular I almost always share with people um, so there's like a recurring sketch theme called Number Wang and it's literally just like a cheesy game show host and he's like welcome to Number Wang and it's two contestants who just shout random numbers like 5 6 Twenty nine. That's number wang. Like it just it's 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 ridiculous. <laughs> but every single time I have to do my taxes or work with numbers in any way, and I get frustrated, I just shout, that's number wang as like a way to like release my frustration. And then the other one, I don't actually know what the name of the sketch is, but um it's like kind of vaguely Dan Brown esque, where it's like the secret society of people. Who um believe that everything is better, that people would work best when they are just slightly less than two drinks drunk. <laughs> and, the main, and the guy is like, Oh, I know who you are. You're the inebriati. And he's like, Well, we prefer to think of ourselves as knights tippler, but yes. <laughs> like. <laughs> It's and I mean I like I said I highly recommend you guys look at I'll try and find these sketches uh and link them when I make when I write the show notes cuz they're so funny um but yeah that's it so uh
1: did we get any questions I think we got like one a couple days ago I know we got one on the blog itself that just is wondering when we're going to do our next query critique <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, I know. And it's hilarious they wrote their name as please help. <laughs> <laughs> um that's not scheduled, but we will be doing another one. We'll do those periodically. And I'm not sure when, but it'll happen.
0: Yeah. It's pretty soon. I mean, I think we attempted to do this quarterly last time. So maybe March we'll say yeah maybe sure. do a query critique in march uh we'll we'll figure out a particular date and then we'll just but you guys can go ahead and, and email them to the publishing crawl at com with query critique on top and uh we'll get to them at some point in march if you guys want us to look at them so here we go oh here we go uh this is from Allison cade on twitter And she asks, in the podcast, you talk about leaning on archetypes and queries to help define the story at a glance. How explicitly do you recommend writers call out relevant archetypes
1: and queries? Um, I don't know. I guess I don't necessarily recommend calling out archetypes in your query unless it's like super relevant i think sometimes when that's useful is when you have an ensemble cast and you don't have time to get into who everybody is you know and so you're like my protagonist is going on a quest with you know a thief with a heart of gold and a you know a the shy, but precocious, you know, four-year-old or whatever. I don't know. I can't think of archetypes right now. I'm, I have so much Tylenol running through my body. But I think in queries, archetypes are a nice way to deal with large casts that you're not going to have. You know, remember we said try to stick to only three named characters. So if you've got more than that, you can kind of use archetypes as a way to inform us about the other characters. Um, but again, remember... The point of a query is to tell the story. And sometimes I worry that if you're thinking too much about archetypes in your query, you're going to get into that like book report t- style of query that is not effective. Where you're talking about like the larger themes of your book and the, mm-hmm. you know, the structure of your book. And then, you know, that's what I call kind of book report queries <laughs> where they're talking about the book instead of telling the story, which is much more important. Um and I think when we
0: said leaning into archetypes basically, when you understand what archetypal narrative your book is trying to tell-
1: mm-hmm.
0: then it I think it helps you structure how you're going to write that query. But to say that this is an archetypal narrative of blank, then we get into what Kelly calls book report territory." You want? Oh, you always. I mean, the whole thing about a query, and I understand queries are difficult for people to write, and I I have written a couple things on pub crawl about how to write catalog copy that I'm trying. Like, there is a little bit of a trick to it, um, but the whole point of a query is to basically give a general sense of premise, stakes, and the hint of the hint of a narrative arc yeah that's it you don't need to tell the whole story you don't have to say how it does what it does you don't have to do any of that you just need premise stakes character and you hint at what the narrative arc is you don't even have to tell us what the ending of the book is in a query you just need to know just need to give a hint as to where the story is going and that's it yeah. and then and then if you've have sample pages and the the agent can read the sample writing to see if they want to read more. But like, and I know this is very difficult, especially for novelists, right? Because novelists write long. So then if they try and do that in a short amount of space, it's difficult. <laughs> I understand. <clears throat> but it's it's just that. You need premise, stakes, characters, or rather you need... Premise, characters, and stakes, I think, probably in that order.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I wouldn't wouldn't worry about your archetypes for your query. Mm-mm. Like I said, just knowing what
0: archetypal narrative this, your book falls into will help how you pitch the premise, characters, and stakes to us. But you don't have to say explicitly what it is because like if the because the premise is essentially going to be whatever your premise is and then your characters and the stakes the, all three of those should hint at what kind of archetypal narrative it is but you don't have to tell us because then you would be telling and not showing
1: mm-hmm. <laughs> um any new reviews or reviews that we have not read we do have reviews that we have not read Let me see where they are. Okay, I got it. This one is from A.E. Beckham. Heard about this podcast through my coworker, Mike, who's a friend of the two hosts. (laughs) Hi, thank you, Mike. (laughs) And I'm so glad he told me about... This podcast and that I started listening. It's given me such a wealth of information about the publishing world and how to write a book that's made me so excited to start editing the first draft. I love Kelly and JJ's back and forth rapport that only two really good friends can have while talking about something that they're passionate about. It makes things that sound boring at face value, the ins and outs of publishing, really interesting and fun to learn about. Thank you so much for this podcast. I appreciate that. First of all, thank you, Mike, and thank you. Um, A-E, um, Mike is the co-host of our, of our avatar podcast, for those of you who don't listen to that and don't know who he is. Um, but I love that the ins and outs of publishing, which can seem boring at face value, um, are, are made more interesting by this podcast because we all know I am a huge, huge, um, contracts, Fanatic, and <laughs> um, and we talk a lot—not even just about contracts here, but just about the business part of writing, um, and. And J.J. talks a lot about, you know, kind of your author self versus your personal self and the business decisions that you make as a writer. And, you know, publishing is a business. And I think it's very easy to think about the artistic or glamorous or creative, um, you know, side of writing. And that's a wonderful part of, you know, things. But um publishing is an industry. And... Um, it, it's, I guess maybe it seems boring or tedious, but getting through that tedium and really understanding the choices that you're making and making those choices, informed choices are actually really, really important to the security of your future creativity. Um, so, read your contracts. <laughs> I have to say it. I can't not say that. I I mean, yeah. It it
0: also I hope, and I hope this is something that will be the case is when you do read your contracts after having listened to us that your contracts will actually make more sense and then you will mm-hmm. want to read your contracts
1: mm-hmm. because now it makes sense to you. Yeah, hopefully. And you know what questions to ask right. and you know all that good stuff. <laughs> um, yeah. Yay, contracts. <laughs> <laughs>
0: That's all for this week. Next week, we will be going back to our kind of publishing series or about the business of publishing by talking about publishing relationships. And by that, we mean relationships between like the agent and the author, the agent and the editor, the editor and their house, the editor and the author, etc., etc. So as always, if you want more, please subscribe via iTunes, Stitcher, Podcast Pickle, or your podcast provider of choice.
1: Also, if you like us, please rate and review when you get a chance as it helps other listeners find the podcast.
0: If you want more Pub Crawl goodness, you can go to our website, publishingcrawl.com, where we have many more posts and articles about various aspects of reading, writing, and the publishing industry.
1: You can also follow us on Twitter at pubcrawlblog, Blog, as well as on Tumblr, Facebook, and Instagram at Publishing Crawl.
0: You can follow me, JJ, at SJJones, that's S-J-A-E-J-O-N-E-S, on Twitter or my website,
1: sjjones.com. And you can follow me, Kelly, at BookishChick on Twitter or Instagram or my website, penandparsley.com. Our theme music
0: is Quirky Dog by Kevin McLeod and our logo is designed by Aaron Bowman, author of Retribution Rails, available now wherever books are sold.
1: If you have any further questions, comments, or feedback, feel free to email us at publishingcrawl at gmail.com. Send us an ask through Tumblr or on Twitter using the hashtag AskPubCrawl.
0: Thanks so much for listening. Bye! Bye!